Good morning. It's great to see you today. What a beautiful time in musical worship we have. Isn't, isn't music just a wonderful gift from God to be able to express our hearts to the Lord? Beautiful. Love that. Well, I hope you're ready to dive into uh, God's Word today because where we find ourselves in our continuing journey through the Sermon on the Mount is at this passage in Matthew chapter 6. So listen as I read it. After talking about giving in secret and praying in secret, this now from the lips of Jesus. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So we better pray before we dive into this, huh? Let's pray. So Lord Jesus, we thank you once again for this privilege, as it were, to sit at your feet. You're the master teacher. You're the Lord. You're our Savior and our King. And so we come as a congregation today to learn from you, to learn of you. And we pray that through your Spirit, you'd open our eyes to the truth of this counter-cultural practice that you talked about here. And we love you. Amen. Amen. Well, if you want to uh, take the, uh, the study guide out of, your, out of your worship folder, you can follow along with us this morning as we talk about incognito fasting. You might be aware that Ramadan is the ninth month in the Islamic calendar, and for 2013, it just ended last month. Muslims regard Ramadan as a very special month because they believe that the first part of their holy scriptures, the Quran, was delivered to their prophet Muhammad during the month of Ramadan. And so to commemorate that, every able-bodied Muslim who has reached puberty is obligated to fast for the 30 days of Ramadan, which for them means going without food and without drink from dawn until dusk each day during that month. You might know that that practice is one of the five pillars of Islam, and for Muslims, it's not optional. To miss days of fasting during Ramadan for a Muslim is severely frowned upon. If you miss, it can be made up later, but the ratio needed to compensate for missed days is very high. The Ramadan fast is meant to help Muslim people draw nearer to Allah and to obtain his forgiveness by atoning for their past sins. It's also to express their gratitude to Allah and their dependence upon him for their daily needs and to remind them also of the plight of the poor and needy people who live around them. And so right now you're thinking, Pastor Steve, why are you talking about Ramadan? Is not this a Christian church here that we're in? And it certainly is. But I bring this up to illustrate the point that like many other religions, Islam requires fasting as a part of their religious devotion. For a Muslim to say, I just don't do that fasting thing, is in essence to say, I'm not a true follower of Islam. It's not up for debate. To be a Muslim is to fast. So upon hearing that, followers of Jesus might think, thank God we're not Muslim. <laughs> Jesus freed us from having to perform these religious rituals. Our Savior, Jesus, fulfilled the law of God for us, his death already atoned for our sins. Amen? 
God chose to accept us in Christ so we don't have to deny ourselves earthly pleasures in order for God to love us. We can enjoy all of God's good gifts, including all of those tasty delicacies that he supplies for us at Olive Garden every week. So I love being a Christian, amen? (laughs) And all of that is true. It's all true. As we've noted while walking through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus showed people the utter failure of performance-based religion. He taught that God's standards are too high for anybody to meet. And that's why he came to fulfill the law of God for us so he could give to all who believe in him his own perfect record of righteousness, right? His straight A report card given to all who trust in Jesus and entrust their lives to him who believe in his finished work on the cross. So being a Christian is a wonderful thing. The pressure is off to have to try and perform in order to get God to like you or to accept you or to gain his favor. But I think a question does remain, and it's this. Is there a place in the life of a Christian for spiritual disciplines? Does Jesus want his people to practice holy habits that require some self-sacrifice. You may know that the word fasting in the original means self-denial. That's what the word means. And so fasting is choosing to deny yourself food or some other earthly pleasure in order to gain spiritual benefit for yourself or for other people. So what I'm asking is this. Does the New Testament ever speak of Jesus' people voluntarily engaging in practices of self-denial, like fasting. Not in order to gain God's acceptance, but in order to express true devotion to their Father. What do you think? Well, in the passage that we just read, we saw Jesus exposing a particular kind of fasting that he thought was tainted. It was fasting to be seen by men, right? To impress other people. Now, I think after three weeks of talking about this, we get this, right? We get it. Doing the right thing for the wrong reason is not the right thing in the sight of God. So, in effect, Jesus was saying, don't do your religious practices to be seen by other people. If, if that's what's underneath all of this, if that's what's driving your giving to the poor, your praying, and here you're fasting... If you're doing it to be seen by men, then the praise of men is the only reward you're going to get. That's what he's saying, right? Sure, what you're doing looks good on the outside, but he was saying your, your heart is selfish. Plus, you're trying to extract from other people what only God really has promised to give. And so we noted last week that living to impress other people betrays the fact that we think that they can save us from our unsatisfying life, which is, in effect, making others our Savior instead of Jesus. I think we get that now. We've talked about it at length. But listen now. Is Jesus here saying, if I am your Savior, if you're truly following me now, then you really don't need to fast anymore? Look again at how he begins this section. When you fast. Do you see that? Not if. But when? So it sounds like he's assuming that people will be fasting. Now, someone might argue, well, Jesus was talking there to a crowd of Jews who fasted all the time. It was part of their religious ritual. It was part of their religious duty. So, of course, he assumed they would be fasting, and that's true. 
But if you look back at where he began this sermon in chapter 5, verse 1, it also says that he was talking to his disciples, his followers. So I believe his assumption is that they too would be fasting. Just like with the previous two activities they talked about, giving to the poor and praying, Jesus was not saying, stop doing those things. He was saying, I'm assuming you will do those things. You just need to ask yourself why you're doing them. What's your motivation? What's in your heart? So, in this sermon today, my intention is to build a case, to make a biblical case for Christians, for followers of Jesus, to periodically, under the leading of the Holy Spirit, set aside special seasons for drawing nearer to the Father by intentionally giving up certain pleasures, not bad things, but good gifts, good gifts from God, And to do it not to impress people, but in order to pray more and draw nearer to God. So, I don't know how you think, but here's here's my case. If fasting from a pure heart is still valid for Christians today, we who live in this age of grace, then I would expect to see several things. First, I would expect to see references to fasting by Jesus in the Gospels. Then I would expect to see mentions in the book of Acts of the early church, the early Christians, of them fasting. Then I would expect to be able to turn in my Bible and find benefits and reasons for fasting being taught in the Bible or being illustrated in the Bible. And then as I look at church history, I would expect to see well-known Christians down through the centuries who practiced fasting. Does that make sense? And if I saw all those things, I would need to conclude, well, yeah, I guess fasting is something for Christians even today. So let's see if this is the case. First, did Jesus teach that his followers would practice fasting? Well, I just mentioned Jesus' reference to when you fast, assuming, but is there anything else? Is there anything clear? Well, take a look at this. Matthew chapter 9, just a few chapters further in, verse 14 says this, then the disciples of John, that's John the Baptist, came to him, Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then, what does it say? They will fast. There it is. Do you see it? Then they will fast. When? After the bridegroom is taken away. And that's not a term we use a lot in our day. We would just say the groom... And those fellows who asked this question knew exactly who the bridegroom was because their mentor, John the Baptist, had told them who the bridegroom was. You can look at it in John chapter 3 and verse 29. It was Jesus. And so here Jesus is answering their question by saying that as long as he was around, the bridegroom, it was not a time for fasting and mourning, but for feasting. But a day was coming when he would be taken away from them, and then would be the time for all the wedding guests to fast. Well, that happened, right? Jesus went on from here to die, to hang on a cross and die for the sins of the world. Then he was raised from the grave by the power of God. And then 50 days later, he was indeed taken away, right? He ascended back up into heaven, his home, to be with his father, He did promise to come back for his bride one day, but during the interim, now, during this age of grace, Jesus said that his followers will practice fasting. Then they will fast. 
And I think the implication is that they would do so as a way of saying, Jesus, we can do without food, but we can't do without you. Come back soon for us, Lord Jesus. We hunger for your presence. While we're fasting and praying, let us experience a measure of your presence now, but we long for your return so that we can experience the fullness of your presence in the eternal kingdom. By the way, do you long for that? Is there an ache, a longing in your soul to see Jesus, to experience the fullness of his presence? Well, fasting is one way of expressing how deep that ache is, that longing in your heart, and stirring up more of it. So yes, Jesus taught that there would be a day when his followers would engage in fasting, not to appease God or atone for your sins like the Muslims believe, but to express deep devotion to our Savior. His people would deny themselves food in order to stoke their hunger for more of God. And so that begs the question, did that happen? Did the early Christian church actually practice fasting? And the answer is, in a word, yes. Yes. Jesus departed, the Spirit came, the church was born, and Christians began to fast. Now, they didn't fast all the time. They enjoyed food. They often shared meals together. We read in Acts 2.46, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So they did eat, but there were occasions when they went without food, like in Acts 13.2, Church of Antioch. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and, what, fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Another example, a chapter later in Acts 14, after some churches had been planted, it says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So from that, I gather that there were occasions when fasting just seemed to be what the Holy Spirit was calling them to, like when they were selecting spiritual leaders for a new church plant, or when they were choosing men to be elders to oversee those brand new churches. If you look at church history, it tells us that in addition, many Christians in those early days made a habit of fasting twice a week on Wednesdays and on Fridays. So skipping meals in order to devote themselves to prayer got woven into the fabric and rhythm of the life of many of those early believers. Well, then I thought, well, what about Paul? You know, Paul, the apostle. Certainly, if fasting was truly a part of the Christian lifestyle, then we should expect to see some references to Paul fasting in the New Testament, right? Well, did you know that one of the first things that Paul did after his encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road where he got knocked off his horse, one of the first things he did was to go on a three-day fast? Did you know that? Acts 9.8, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing, so he had been blinded. They led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Later, Paul would write to the believers in Corinth in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven that he fasted often as he carried out his very important ministry. So did the early Christians practice fasting, yes or no? 
Yes, they did. As an expression of worship to Jesus and in order to discern God's leading for their future more clearly. How about this question? Are there indications that believers down through the centuries continued this practice of fasting? Well, one of the interesting things you find when you study church history is that all the revivals that took place in and through the church down through the centuries were accompanied by Christians setting aside special times for prayer and for fasting. Some people believe those revivals were actually prompted by Christians praying and fasting. The Reformation for example, that caught fire in Europe in the 1500s. The first and second great, great awakenings that occurred here in this country in the 1700s and the 1800s. The revival in Wales at the beginning of the 20th century. The Jesus movement in the 50s or 60s and 70s that some of you were a part of with longer hair and big wide bell-bottoms and tie-dyed t-shirts back in the day and one way, right, Jesus. All of those revivals were accompanied by Christians fasting and praying. Dr. Elmer Towns noted that each of the 16th century reformers practiced fasting, that's Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and those guys, as did the leaders of the evangelical revivals in the centuries to follow, and many revival movements advocated the return of the early Christian practice of fasting two days a week. So, here's what I think. I, I think that for us, the issue is not so much the issue that Jesus was addressing there in the Sermon on the Mount, fasting in order to impress people. No, I think for us, the more pertinent issue is, do we fast at all? Do we fast as followers of Jesus? You know, our culture bombards us every day with the message that we shouldn't deny ourselves anything. That we're entitled to squeeze all the pleasure we can possibly squeeze out of every material possession, out of every relationship, out of entertainment, accomplishments, food, drink, sex, and everything else. For centuries, millions of Christians viewed fasting as a holy privilege. Did you know that? A high calling aimed at drawing them nearer to the, the, the Christ who saved them and to whom they were devoted. At times, they would fast and pray for days, sometimes even weeks, in order to seek God more fully or cry out to him in desperation on behalf of their loved ones or their church or the despicable state of their nation. But modern-day Christians, including me, rarely give fasting a, a passing thought. I mean, the idea of skipping meals in order to pray just sounds kind of weird. Like, that looks for crazy people who are kind of out of their mind. Well, I should probably say that statement applies mostly to Western Christians. Korean believers, African believers, South American believers, Christians in other nations have been and continue to practice fasting on a regular basis, South Korean Christians in particular put us to shame when it comes to depriving themselves of pleasure in order to be more devoted to Christ. Over in Seoul, South Korea, for decades, since the 60s, tens of thousands of believers have been rising every morning as early as 3 a.m., making their way in the dark to a place there called Prayer Mountain to seek God in prayer and fasting before heading off into their work day. 
Is it any wonder that if you look, pull up online any website that shows the relative density of the Christian population in every country in the world, that when you look at South Korea, it's solid red. A higher density of Christians populating that country than any country in the world. They send missionaries here to the U.S. Look, you know me. I'm not out to put us on a guilt trip. I'm not. That would not be right. Jesus did not die to put his people on an exhausting performance treadmill. We live by grace. Amen? We live by grace. But it is true that even Jesus' people can become so enamored with God's gifts that we can forget about the giver of those gifts. Forget about God's purposes in the world. You see, I think what's at issue here is what controls us, what masters us. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 6.12, Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. I'm not going to be controlled by anything but Jesus. Man, it is so easy to let our appetites master us, isn't it? Our appetites for pleasure and an easy life, for sexual pleasure, for being recognized by other people, for food. I wonder, instead of eating to live, I wonder how many of us live to eat. But what about our hunger for God? I mean, how, how intense are our hunger pangs for more of God in our lives? Do we ever cry out like David did in Psalms? Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsts for thee. My flesh longs for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is to see thy power and thy glory even as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name and my soul shall be satisfied as with the richest of foods. When with David do we cry out as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? When was the last time you said, like Jesus did, I have food to eat that you know not of? And speaking of Jesus, he fasted, right? He fasted. When he was led into the wilderness to be tested, our Lord, your Savior, went without food for 40 days, which is about the limit that a human being can go before expiring. I wonder, when was the last time you or I saw that we were getting ready to enter into a season of testing or temptation in our lives, and as a result, we're prompted to go on a fast to prepare for that? Where does the strength come from to successfully battle the evil one like Jesus did and say, Be gone from me, Satan, for man does not live on bread alone but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. John Piper says that fasting is feasting, feasting on God. And that includes feasting on the meat of his word, the, the bread of his word, the milk and the honey of his word. When was the last time any of us fasted from food and feasted on the Bible to the point where with Job we could say, I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. 
I'd rather hear from you, God, than eat. Well, maybe you're like me. Maybe you're open to this idea, but if you're going to deny yourself Cain's chicken, you need some good reasons to do so. Let me share with you some biblical purposes for entering into a fast. Why fast and pray, many would ask. Well, survey of the Bible reveals that people in the scriptures fasted and prayed in order to accomplish a number of purposes, to know God deeply and experience him more fully. Do any of you want that? To seek and obtain God's direction. Some people fasted in order to to get clear on what God had for them going forward into the future, maybe decisions they were facing. What path should I go, God? We're, we're there as a church right now. Others fasted and prayed to call out for God's protection for his people. I know people who fast and pray for God's protection over their children spiritually and their grandchildren. Some prayed and fasted to express remorse over the condition of God's people and remind God of his covenant, his promises with them. You promised God. Remember, you promised this for your people. Some fasted to seek God's favor with the authorities that were over them. Like Nehemiah. God, give me favor in the presence of the king. Some people fasted and prayed in order to share mourning with another person who was suffering. They entered into that mourning with another person by declaring a fast. And many, many, many people in the scriptures fasted and prayed in order just to humble themselves before God. Some people fasted in order for the purpose of setting other people free who were oppressed. So they knew people who were consumed with addictions and oppressions and they decided to fast and pray to break the chains for other people's addictions, and set them free. Some fasted to gain supernatural understanding from God, to return to God with all their hearts after a season of living as a prodigal, then coming back to God, just demonstrating their sincerity by fasting. Some fasted to mourn Christ's absence and prepare for his return. Many People in the scriptures fasted to confess their sins and the sins of others, the sins of their nation, to evidence true repentance, to plead for deliverance from judgment. God, save us. Some people fasted to receive sufficient strength to resist temptation. I've got to get this out of my life, God. You've got to get this out of my life, so I'm fasting. To discern God's will for selecting spiritual leaders. Lord, we need to know whom you've chosen. We don't want to take a misstep when it comes to identifying Leaders to commission new elders for service in the church, to give themselves to a special season of prayer, and some fasted to hold back God's judgment on a nation. Oh God, our nation is wicked. We deserve judgment, but but would you find it in your heart to just be patient a little longer and hold back the flood of your judgment so that we can repent? There's some appropriateness in that, wouldn't you agree? Let me ask, do any of those reasons resonate with you? Or maybe more than one? If so, God may be calling you to a season of prayer and fasting. You should know that studies also have repeatedly shown that there are some physical benefits derived from fasting in addition to the spiritual benefits, not the least of which is giving your digestive system a rest for a period of time. 
you are sensing a call from God to do this, there are some practical things to consider before going on a fast. I think I've listed them there for you. You know, you may have a physical or medical condition that would prevent you from going on a fast. And if you feel like you're being called to it, you, you should talk to your doctor first to make sure, kind of get cleared for that. I would recommend that if you are intending on entering into a fast, that you prepare for that leading up to it by reducing the portions of what you eat. I mean, you don't want to pig out at the buffet the meal before you're getting ready to go on a fast. It's not going to go well for you. Make sure to drink a lot of liquids while fasting and, of course, the attendant frequent restroom trips that accompany that. Expect discomfort. This is not pleasant. This is not fun. This is hard. Expect discomfort. Expect hunger pangs and headaches. I always keep a bottle of ibuprofen handy. For support, consider asking some others to join you or pray for you. Now, don't announce it with a trumpet, right? We learned about that. Doo, 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 doo. I'm going to be going on a fast for 40 days because I am so awesomely spiritual. I mean, we don't want to do that. But a few trusted people who know you that you would say, hey, I need support to do this. Or maybe you'd even join me in it. Of course, if you find yourself during your fast becoming ill, end the fast. It's not a legalistic thing, is it? Keep praying, but end the fast. Some of you may know there are several kinds of food fasts found in the Bible. And a guy named Arthur Wallace detailed these out in his book called God's Chosen Fast. Three kinds he mentioned. One we would call a normal fast. That's abstaining from all food and only drinking liquids. Maybe you've heard of a juice fast before. That's what would fall in that category. There's an absolute fast, which is abstaining from everything, food and liquids. You should only do that for a very short duration, maybe a couple days at most. And then there's a partial fast, which is limiting your diet to simple foods or maybe cutting out a meal a day. I know people who every Wednesday at lunch skip their meal in order to pray. And so as you look at that and think about those reasons, I wonder... Is the Lord calling any of you to fast in any of these ways during the upcoming week? Well, I want to conclude today by sharing with you some quotes on fasting. When God is pulling me deeper, when God's working in my heart to intensify my hunger and desire for him, God often uses an author named John Piper to stimulate spiritual hunger in my heart. And I'm recommending Piper's book today, A Hunger for God, Desiring God Through Fasting and Prayer, that you can order in our bookstore. Now, you've got to be ready for Piper, okay? He's like on a different level, <laughs> and you've got to be prepared. But these quotes come just from the introduction in this book. So grab onto your seat there, or your neighbor. He says this, Christian fasting at its root is the hunger of a homesickness for God. Half of Christian fasting is that our physical appetite is lost because our homesickness for God is so intense. The other half is that our homesickness for God is threatened because our physical appetites are so intense. He said, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when those replace an appetite for God himself, 
The idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. Fasting is not the forfeit of evil, but of good. Fasting keeps us from turning gifts into gods. The issue is not food, per se. The issue is anything and everything that is or can be a substitute for God. Christian fasting is a test to see what desires control us. Fasting reveals the measure of food's mastery over our lives, or TV, or computers, or the internet, or whatever we submit to again and again to conceal the weakness of our hunger for God. He writes, the strongest, most mature Christians I have ever met are the hungriest for God. It might seem that those who eat most would be the least hungry, but that's not the way it works with an inexhaustible fountain, an infinite feast, and a glorious Lord. The more deeply you walk with Christ, the hungrier you get for Christ. The more homesick you get for heaven. The more you want all the fullness of God. The more you want to be done with sin. The more you want the bridegroom to come again. The more you want the church to be revived and purified with the beauty of Jesus. The more you want a great awakening to God's reality in your city. The more you want to see the light of the gospel penetrate the darkness of all the unreached people groups of the world. The more you want to see false worldviews yield to the force of the truth the more you want to see pain relieved and tears wiped away and death destroyed, the more you long for every wrong to be made right and the justice and grace of God to fill the earth like the waters cover the sea. If you don't feel strong desires for those manifestations of the glory of God, it's not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied, it's because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things and there's no room for the great things. God did not create you for this. There is an appetite for God, and it can be awakened. And fasting is one of God's primary tools for awakening and stimulating an intensified hunger for God in your life. And not just stimulating that hunger, but satisfying it. My wife's been talking to me about my sermons lately. And uh, she said, how come you don't, you're not talking about the reward that God promises? You haven't said much about that, Steve. Like when he said, you know, give to the poor, give in secret, and God will reward you. Pray in secret, and the Lord who sees in secret will reward you. And here, fasting, God will reward you. What is the reward? What's the reward? Is it lots of money? In the very next verse, he says, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth. What's the reward? Is it the praise of men that you'll be honored by men? Well, he's already talked about that, right? What's the reward? I've come to believe that the reward for pure-hearted fasters and prayers is more of God. That he's the reward. Didn't David say, you are my portion?" My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods, banqueting at the feast of Jesus. More of him. Our Lord himself once said, you shall seek me and you shall find me when you search for me with what? With all of your heart. And that's what fasting is primarily about. Now, I know all of you made big lunch plans for today. And you've been fidgeting in your seat since I started this sermon. You're about ready to shoot me. <laughs> or maybe you invited, you've been inviting your coworker to come to church for a year, and the day they decided to come was today. And you're thinking, oh, no! 
listen, I have lunch plans for today too, so let's go enjoy a wonderful meal together, amen? You can glorify God by eating a meal with a grateful heart, and on occasion, when he calls you to, you can glorify God by going without food in order to express deeper devotion to Christ and hunger for God. Piper says, each of these has its appointed place, and each has its danger. The danger of eating is that we'll fall in love with the gift, and the danger of fasting is that we'll belittle the gift and glory in our own willpower so that others will think highly of us. So here's my conclusion. I believe that this has to be a Holy Spirit thing in your life and in mine. To participate in fasting that's truly biblical, that gains the reward of a deeper experience with God, you need to be convinced in your heart that the Holy Spirit is prompting you to participate in this. It's a response to His leading. I do believe the Lord is calling many of you to give up something that you normally enjoy for a period of time this week in order to seek God more deeply and draw near to Him in prayer and to petition him for the things that he's placed in your heart to ask him for. In your worship folder again this week is a little insert, yellow insert. It says, praying for gospel impact. And this is something we've been working towards now for three or four weeks. Seven stretching days, it says, of prayer and fasting, September 22nd through the 28th. Well, the 22nd is today, and so officially We're talking tonight, praying for the increasing impact of the gospel in your own heart and life, your family, your neighborhood, your workplace, your small group, your community, neighboring communities, your nation, and the world. Say, how can I participate if God is leading? Well, the the prayer room back here has been transformed. It's a a beautiful place to pray, and there's going to be a nightly prayer gathering this week. 7 p.m. till about 8.30. You can come alone or with a friend, and I'm hoping many of you, if you're in small groups, will bring your whole small group on the night that you normally meet and come and pray together and with some others who are gathered there. Some of you may want to prayer walk through your neighborhoods. There's going to be a card given for that that will explain to you how to do that. Some of you, if the Spirit leads, will choose to go without something this week, food or solid food, Television, video games, Facebook. I can see some of your hands are getting clammy. You're starting to shake already. Just at the thought of giving up Facebook for a day or two days. Did you know a center has been opened recently for those struggling with internet addiction? Help free them from that. Using those times to read God's word and pray. On the back is space for you to create your own list for gospel impact, people that you know, family members, prodigal sons or daughters who are far from God, or parents who aren't saved, or coworkers you're worried about, you can put their names on there and pray through this, bring it to the prayer room when you come, pray through it, and then there's a church-wide request that's in italics there, something our leadership is asking all of us to pray, Father, please give us your direction so that our leaders will know which neighboring community most needs a new gospel-centered congregation planted by new life. Lead us further into your gospel mission in Columbus. So this is something that we've been asking all of new life to pray about. And we've 
mentioned before that we're considering the communities of Whitehall or Blacklick, but we're not sure. That decision hasn't been made. It's an inkling right now or an inclination, and we're asking all of you who call New Life your church to pray that prayer and ask the Lord, the head of the church, to direct our steps into where he wants us to go next to plant a new gospel-centered congregation. So there's that, and in addition, I'm looking, I just felt compelled this week to look for 40 people, 40 people who feel prompted to fast from solid food this week, sometime this week, for at least three days, not to impress God, not to impress people, not to impress me, but to have more time to seek the Lord in prayer. I think I have almost all those 40, you know who you are, but if you think you are one of those, then... Drop by the prayer room right back through here after service and pick up. There's only a few remaining copies of this book. I, I ordered 40 copies. And, you know, if you've got a $5 bill, throw it in the envelope there. And we'll start reading this as a, as a group starting today with the introduction, reading a chapter a day this week. And then if you leave your email there for me, I'll create a distribution list and we'll exchange emails with encouragements and quotes from the book and passages of Scripture because this is going to be hard. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it as God stimulates and satisfies our hunger for more and more of him. And so, would you bow your heads with me as I close this morning? And I want to pray for us in a minute. But first, I know that some of you have been spoken to by the Lord, maybe even before today, and you're already sure, yes, the Lord is calling me to give up something this week that I would normally enjoy for a period of time in order to pray more and seek God more. And if that's you today, as we respond to the Lord in these next few moments, I'm going to ask you to get out of your seat and come and kneel around this lower platform or by the curtain or back over on the sides to ask God for strength. To ask God for strength. Because it's not going to be easy. We need his strength in order to do this. Some of you are not sure. In fact, you came to church today. You didn't even know this was going to be the topic. And this is like, whoa, you know. But now you sense perhaps the spirit talking to you about it. But you're not sure. You're not sure what he's calling you to. Well, you too come and pray for God's direction. And as you do, I'm going to pray for you that by this evening you'll know. You'll know what the Lord is calling you to. And so, Heavenly Father, as a congregation now, we come before you, acknowledging we are dependent upon you in every way. Lord, for many of us, our hunger for you is not what it was at one time. And we remember those times when we walked so close, and you were like right there. And there's something in us that would love to be restored to that. There are others of us who you just place things in our hearts that are deep longings, and, and you're calling us to set aside food or television or the internet or something in order to seek you in an intense and fervent way this week. Lord, as we come now and kneel before you and pray, I ask that you give your people strength to do, Jesus, what you're calling them to do. And if they're not sure, that by this evening, Lord, you reveal to their hearts what your intention is. And I ask this in your precious name.